Amen. It is good to see you all in the house of the Lord on this day, this Pentecost Sunday. Uh, if you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me now to the Acts of the Apostles. We are going to be in verse 1 through 13. And for the brief moment we have together this morning, I would like to speak from this text on the topic, the power of Pentecost. The power of Pentecost. Brew with me a quick word of prayer. Almighty God, we thank you again for the joy and the privilege to gather under your feet, to hear your word, to be corrected, to be reproved, to be instructed in righteousness. We ask, O oh Lord, that you will speak to us now, that your Holy Spirit will descend upon this place, and that you will fill us anew, stir up within us, O oh God, your word, and that we might be renewed in you, and through you, and by you, by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Speak to us now, O oh Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. For those who may be unfamiliar with the framework and the structures of the New Testament, when you go to the New Testament, you see that the order of the books actually have a rhyme and a reason to them. For example, the Pauline epistles are given to us not chronologically by date, but rather by descending length of the Greek text. The only anomaly is that the book of Galatians precedes the slightly longer Ephesians, but generally, the Pauline letters are ordered based on their length. The book of Revelation is put at the end because, obviously, it deals with end-timed matters. The Gospels open up the New Testament because they introduce us to the main character of the Scriptures and of our faith, that is, Jesus, our Christ. Matthew, again, is the first gospel in your Bible because unlike any of the other gospels, Matthew gives us a more detailed description of the birth of Jesus and the beginnings of his life. And so Matthew begins the New Testament. There are scholars, though, who would argue, if you look at the layout of the gospels, that there's something out of order in separating the gospel of Luke from the book of Acts. There are those who would argue, maybe rightfully so, that Acts ought to be consecutively placed right next to Luke. One reason being that the same writer of the Gospel of Luke is the same writer of the Acts of the Apostles. And Luke, after he pens his Gospel and tells us the story of the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, then takes scroll, a new scroll of parchment and puts stylus to parchment again to write the story of the Acts of the Apostles, to remind us that the good news of Jesus Christ does not stop with the earthly ministry of Jesus. And so in this second volume of Luke's writing, he wants to show that there is a continuity and a connectivity between the ministry of Christ and the mission of his church. So he pens the Acts of the Apostles to let us know that it didn't end with Jesus, but rather there's a connection 
that is found in chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Acts on the day of Pentecost. The Pentecost is the day, 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that links the church to her head. That just as God shaped Adam out of the dust of the earth, but Adam did not become a living being until God breathed his ruach into him, his spirit, which caused him to come alive. So too did Jesus Christ shape and form the church and paid for her with his blood. But it wasn't until the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came to breathe into the church that it became a living entity. Because we know that without the Holy Spirit, Christian discipleship would be inconceivable. There can be no life without the life giver, no understanding without the spirit of truth, no fellowship without the unity of the spirit, no understanding, no Christ-likeness of character apart from his fruit, no effective witness without his power. As a body without breath is a corpse, so the church without the spirit is dead. And the church is birthed as the spirit comes to work. It took the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost to birth the church, which means today is your birthday, church. Today, we celebrate all our birthdays. So turn to your neighbor and say, happy birthday, fam. <laughs> Amen. Our text this morning comes in the heels of the ascension in Acts 1. And just before that neck craning and awe-inspiring event, in verses 4 through 8 of chapter 1, Jesus calls his disciples' attention to a source of power that is so central that they must remain in Jerusalem awaiting the Father's promise that we heard from the reading of the gospel this morning in John. Rather than attempting to fulfill the mission in their own strength, they need the strength of God, the power of God. And so in chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus promises that his followers will receive power when the Spirit comes. And so this morning, I want us to search the scriptures to understand this power. I want to examine the proofs of this Pentecost power. The people who are witness to Pentecost power. And finally, the purpose for Pentecost power. First, the proofs of Pentecost power. We see here three supernatural signs that publicly demonstrate the Spirit's coming on the day of Pentecost. They sound a sight and strange speech. There is a dramatic invasion of God's presence in the gathered assembly, and Luke attributes the source as from heaven. See here in verse 2 of chapter 2, the first sign, and suddenly, somebody say suddenly. <laughs> suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Now, you got to think here, this wasn't just like somebody blowing on your neck. I'm talking about a mighty rushing wind. Think a Category 5 hurricane. And this sound of violent wind filled the whole house in which the followers of Jesus, numbering 120 strong, were gathered. We see that often in the Bible, 
God's presence is connected to a powerful wind. Now, y'all are Bible scholars, good students of the scripture. You'll remember Elijah's experience on a mountain in 1 Kings 19, verse 11. Or Ezekiel's vision of the dry bones coming to life in Ezekiel 37. They were all accompanied by a mighty rushing wind. In fact, Jesus himself uses the same metaphor with Nicodemus in John 3 to describe the miracle of the conversion. He says, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The sound of a mighty rushing wind is the first proof or sign. And secondly, there appeared to them visibly what seemed to be tongues as of fire, which rested on each one of them. And again, Bible scholars out there, you know that in the Bible that fire often represents God's activity or God's presence. Think, for example, Exodus chapter 3, the burning bush, or at uh, Exodus 19, the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, it was accompanied by fire and smoke. And it appears, it appears that this fire separates upon the gathering on each of their heads, becoming for each of them an individual possession. You see, previously, the presence of the Spirit wasn't poured out on a group of people in this manner. This spirit's work was limited to singular people, and God's manifest presence was located in particular places like the temple or the tabernacle. But this moment marks an important and historical shift where the spirit dwells in all believers, and he makes them collectively and individually the temple of God. And that is the second proof, divided tongues as a fire. And then we find the third proof in verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The third proof is other tongues. We know these three experiences seem like natural phenomena, wind, fire, and speech, but yet they were supernatural, both in origin and in character. The noise, notice, was not wind, but sounded like it. The sight was not fire, but resembled it. And the speech was in languages which were ordinarily intelligible, yet in some way other. They heard wind-like sound. They saw fire-like apparitions. And they spoke the other languages. Yet what they experienced was more than sensory. It was significant. And what was that significance? As we see in our text in the first part of verse 4, see there, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Luke wants to make very clear that God is now working in the lives of the disciples and followers of Jesus the same way that the Spirit worked through Jesus. You do know that Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit, don't you? After his baptism in Luke chapter 3, we find in Luke 4, 1 saying, Jesus 
full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led into the wilderness by the Spirit. We find in the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Luke 4, 14, it says, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and he taught in the synagogues. In Nazareth, on Sabbath day, Jesus opened the scroll to the book of Isaiah, and he quoted Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1 and 2. He said, the Spirit of the Lord is a upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord. And so we see that Jesus' power, Jesus' ministry itself was empowered by the Holy Spirit. And the disciples in Acts 2 are empowered by the Holy Spirit. The church is empowered by the Holy Spirit. It is the way that God works in the world. It is the way he still works in the world. It is how we carry on the work of the Lord. By the power of God. Through the Holy Spirit. And so when you think, when you think back to that moment that you first understood the gospel, that was the Holy Spirit at work in you. When the spiritual light bulb came on inside your heart, it was the blowing wind of the Holy Spirit. That is God at work. The joy and passion of ministry is having a front row seat at the Holy Spirit's work. It is the thrill of knowing that the Holy Spirit is at work and is not the Holy Spirit at work at incarnation. Last week, we baptized four people and confirmed twice as many. In just a few weeks, we'll baptize even more people. That is the Holy Spirit at work in our midst. The Holy Spirit is at work still today in the church. Oh, blessed be his holy name. Notice, though, that what follows in Acts 2 is the bold proclamation of the gospel. And nothing, nothing more is said about this phenomenon of wind and fire. Luke instead concentrates on the third sign, the other tongues. In verse 4, after these believers were filled with the Holy Spirit, they began to speak in other tongues. Now, I don't want to chase the rabbit uh, of what constitutes tongues in the book of Acts and the term glossolalia in you know, the New Testament, but suffice, suffice it to say that in this passage, the tongues here were actually the real, actual languages of the Jews who had gathered in the city for the Feast of Weeks. And Luke concentrates on this particular sign because what follows hinges on it. Tongues provides the catalyst for the multicultural audience's recognition of God's activity. They said they heard the mighty works of God in their own languages. Indeed, this was the starting point of Peter's message. And this brings us to our second point. The people who witnessed the power of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. In verse 5, Luke indicates the presence of diaspora Jews from every nation under heaven. He emphasizes the international nature of the crowd, which is gathered to see what's going on with these 
Galileans, these backwater people. And we must be careful, though, not to press Luke's every nation literally to include, for example, Native Americans or Australian Aboriginals or the Arctic Inuit. Luke was speaking, as the biblical writers normally do, from his own horizon and not ours, right? He was referring to the Greco-Roman world situated around the Mediterranean basin. So Luke's list comprises five groupings, as we see in our text. And he moves from east to west. First, he mentions Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia. These were probably descendants of Jewish exiles that were transported there in the 8th and 6th century BC. And then secondly, in verse 9b and 10a, he mentions Phrygia and uh, Pamphylia. This was areas which uh, we call Asia Minor or Turkey, Cappadocia and Pontus, right? And then he slipped in there Judea. It's kind of odd because Judea is between Mesopotamia and Cappadocia, and some commentators think Luke is using the word to refer to a sort of wider area uh, that comprises all of Palestine and Syria, maybe even Armenia. And then we see the third group is North Africa, namely Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene. The fourth group we see there are visitors from Rome in verse 10, both Jews and proselyte converts. And then the fifth is Cretans and Arabs. This was an international, multilingual, multicultural, multi-ethnic crowd that gathered around the 120. So Luke is at pains to emphasize the cosmopolitan character of this crowd, not least by the expression from every nation under heaven. Now, although all the nations of the world were not present, literally, they were representatively. Luke gives us in Acts 2 a table of nations, as you were, comparable to the one we find in Genesis chapter 10. That list was followed in Genesis chapter 11 that you heard read earlier by God coming down to scatter the languages. And this is an intentional illusion by Luke. It is an inversion of the story of Babel, a reordering of the chaos that began there when God confused human language so that people would not be able to build a tower with its tops up to the heavens. In fact, the word in the Septuagint that is used that translates for Confusion is the same word Luke uses for the crowd's bewilderment. But now they were enabled to understand the apostles' message. A babble. Follow me here. A babble. Human languages were confused and nations were scattered. But in Jerusalem, the language barrier was supernaturally overcome as a sign that the nations will now be gathered together in Christ. And it prefigures the day that when the redeemed company of God will be drawn from every nation, from every tribe, from every people, and every tongue crying out, worthy, worthy is the Lord, the lamb that was slain. And so in Genesis, we remember that God descended and scattered 
tongues to prevent unity. But here in Acts, the spirit descends and scatters tongues to create multicultural unity. It is a new unity in the spirit that transcends racial, national, and linguistic barriers. And indeed, we know that cross-cultural unity is a major activity of the spirit, is it not? If you all know your history, your church history, this is a street revival occurred in the early 20th century in LA, California. And it occurred in a historical context of revivals elsewhere in the world, including the Welsh revival and the outpouring of the spirit at Pandita Ramabai's orphanage in India. But remember that the main leader of the Azusa Street Revival was William Seymour, a black man living during Jim Crow. And yet this revival was multicultural and multi-ethnic. In fact, Frank Bottoman, a, 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 a white participant in the, in the revival, celebrated that the color line was washed away by the blood. Oh, I wish you would get with me here. Seymour noted in Acts 2, the outpouring of the spirit involved crossing cultural barriers. The true reception of the spirit must involve ethnic reconciliation and unity amongst Christ's followers. And Seymour came to emphasize that the true experience of the spirit must go beyond speaking in other people's languages under the inspiration of the spirit. We must also work for the unity that, that tongue-speaking points to. And I'm glad, brothers and sisters, that we are part of a church that works hard for that unity, that believes in the ministry of racial reconciliation and multi-ethnicity as a necessary component of the gospel. I'm glad, friends, that I can be part of a church where I can be my full black African self, and you can be your full white European self, and your full Asian self, and your full Latin self, and all of our diverse cultures from various nationalities, languages, and ethnicity can come together under the banner of Jesus Christ. This is how I know that the Spirit is at work at incarnation, that regardless of ethnicity, class, or gender, the Holy Spirit empowers us to be partners, no, family, brothers and sisters, united under one Lord, one faith, one baptism, indwelt, enabled, and empowered by one Spirit of God. And we know this it's especially important in our day, in a society that is divided by race and class and gender and all kinds of other identities. Every time we gather on Sunday, we show a watching world what is the true power of the gospel and of Pentecost. It is the Spirit's empowerment that obviates cultural and ethnic boundaries and we instead are a new community of diverse people, equally dependent on Christ and committed to one another. That what unites us is stronger than the blood in our veins. That what unites us is the very blood of Jesus Christ. 
And this underscores what I believe makes diversity both more important and less important than you may have considered before. What do I mean by that? It is more important because diversity is a grand witness to the truth of the gospel. It is one of the most obviously supernatural characteristics of a local church. In other words, the visible bond of our unity shows off the power of an invisible gospel. But I submit to you that it is less important because diversity is not an end in itself. Make it plain for me, make it plain. Hear me now and hear me well, church. Multi-ethnicity, multiculturalism, diversity is not the gospel. Diversity is the effect, not the substance. It is the thermometer, not the thermostat. It informs the spiritual temperature of our congregation, but has little ability to inflect maturity. Diversity in the local church matters very little in and of itself, but it matters enormously to the extent that it advertises a deeper reality of gospel unity. And so we see the climax of the Pentecost narrative in the formation of the ideal community in verses 41 through 47, which brings us to our third and final point, the purpose for Pentecost power. See, God poured out the spirit to empower his people to evangelize cross-culturally. But what was the anticipated outcome of cross-cultural evangelism? You see, God intended to create a new community in which believers would love one another and demonstrate to this age, to this world, to this society, that the very image of the life of the kingdom to come has already broken into the present. And we can, see, we can see this purpose of evangelism in the structure of the closing paragraph of this opening section of Acts. It's almost an achiasm. You see there, verse 41, you see the fruit being effective evangelism. And then in verse 42, you see shared worship, meals, and prayer. And then in verse 44 and 45, you see shared possessions. And then it goes back, verse 46, shared worship, meals, and prayer. And it closes out in verse 47, effective evangelism. Because at the heart of the outcome of this new life of the Spirit is not only the Spirit's power and gifting for ministry, but what we might call in Paul's language, the Spirit's fruit. Spirit-empowered believers loving one another so much that they valued one another more than they valued their possessions. Oh, am I speaking to somebody here? What would it look like if you didn't buy that bigger house? 
What would it look like if you didn't buy that new car or that bigger big string television, but instead you gave your possessions and your resources to the upbuilding of the kingdom of God and the local community of your brothers and sisters as you see them in need. You say, oh, I got something that God blessed me with so that I can be a blessing to you. Do you value each other? more than you value your possessions. And we see Peter's preaching from verse 14 through 40. Many converts, 3,000, came to be saved in one sermon. But yet, as we get to the end of chapter 2, it is the believing community's lifestyle that leads to continuous conversion. And this pattern fits well into Luke's theology of Christian transformation, because when the crowd asks Peter what they must do to be saved, he summons them to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus. But this passage goes on to show something of what a repentant lifestyle looks like. In Luke Acts, true conversion involves repentance and commitment to a new Lord. And such commitment to the new Lord also involves commitment to one's new siblings in the new community. It means, as we see in verse 42, devotion to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread and prayers. And the word used for fellowship here, koinonia, refers to the sort of harmony created by shared purpose and mission. Working together in love. It means bearing with one another. It means that when one mourns, all mourn. When one rejoices, all rejoice. It means praying for one another. It means standing up for one another. It means advocating for justice for one another. It means being patient with one another. It means being kind to one another. It means having equal concern for one another. Oh, I wish there were some Bible scholars in the house today. You will notice that I'm reciting to you the one another's of scripture. It means forgiving one another. It means building one another up. It means doing good to one another. It means having compassion on one another, being gentle with one another, offering hospitality to one another, serving one another, having compassion on one another, being sympathetic with one another, accepting one another, encouraging one another, admonishing one another, living in peace with one another. There's a lot. Living in harmony with one another, and above all, loving one another and being unified in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. And friends, friends, I make no pretense that this is easy. Pentecost is not a story of diversity without difficulty. As Acts progresses, it becomes clear that this new community will not belong to simply one culture in table fellowship circumscribed by sacred food customs. Sometimes we see that the Christians in the book of Acts do prove reluctant to cross those cultural boundaries. But we know that God refuses to give them rest until he brings them past 
those boundaries, by force even, by persecution even, by suffering even. He makes them pull down the wall of hostility and binds them together in love. Because God is creating a new community that transcends human boundaries. And God is empowering us even today, even right now, to cross cultural boundaries. What would it look like for you to fellowship with somebody that looks different than you? What would it look like for you to break bread and go into the homes of one another? What would it look like for you to pray with one another? What would it look like for us to unite under the teaching of the word? This is how God creates unity in diversity and how he forms one new multicultural community of worshipers who are committed to Christ and to one another. Because God promises in Pentecost a power for unity and diversity that is both a call and a lavish gift. All thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. Thanks be to God for this wonderful gift. Thanks be to God that I see in your faces the beauty, multicolored, multicultural, multi-ethnic face of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God.